Good evening. Thank you for coming out here. Let me begin with a story about myself and what we're going to do here today. It was Virginia, the year 1667. A group of white Anglican men called the Virginia Assembly got together and they were vexed by an issue. What to do with people of color who were now Christian. The problem was, could they force these people of color to work without pay? And they passed a law to settle that question. The law in the language of the time said this. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly, and the authority thereof, that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. Now that's old-timey language, but do you know what it means? It means that baptism would not free an enslaved Native American, African, or person of mixed race descent. And with that decree, by that grand assembly and their authority, they declared in essence, God can have your soul, but we own your body. In that law, we get the essence of Christian complicity with racism. Throughout centuries of history of European contact with North America, there were critical historical turning points when leaders and decision makers of the day could have chosen differently, could have chosen to dignify all people regardless of their skin color, their racial or ethnic heritage. And yet so often at those critical junctures, People who called on the name of Christ failed to live up to their Christian ideas and capitulated to the culture. So we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about laws like this one passed by the Virginia Assembly in 1667. We're going to talk about famous white preachers and theologians like George Whitfield. We're going to talk about the reason why we have black churches and white churches. But as we go through all of that history, I want you to bear in mind one big idea, one main theme that's going to thread its way throughout all of these historical examples, and that's this. It didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. From the standpoint of 2019, we look back and, and, and it seems almost inevitable to have a society that is stratified by race. It's so deeply embedded in the way we do life in this country and indeed around the world that it seems like it could be no other way. But, but one of the ideas of history is that there's this idea of agency and contingency and the fact that people make choices. And although the choices in the past are made and done and we can't do anything about them, the choices that we make now and in the future 
don't have to follow the same pattern. So the big idea is this. It didn't have to be this way. From the 1500s to the early 1700s, race in North America was still being made. You realize race is a social construct, right? It's, it's, it's not embedded in your biology. The only thing that gives us different skin colors, different chemicals, different amount of chemicals in our skin, but it has nothing to do with your existential dignity or value. And that was true for the first part of what became the United States and its history. So everything I'm about to talk about tonight comes from the book, my first book, called The Color of Compromise, subtitled The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Before I get to that, just a little bit about me. I'm not from around here, in case you couldn't hear it. <laughs> I grew up north of Chicago, and I came down here as a teacher through the Teach for America program to the Delta on the Arkansas side, where I still live today. I served as a teacher for two years through the program and then another two years, and then I was the middle school principal for several more years after that. Spent some time in Jackson, Mississippi, going to seminary and getting my theological degree, and now I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi for various odd reasons. Um, the Color of Compromise is a historical survey about the American church's complicity in racism. Tonight we're going to tackle two specific periods, and the next week and the next week after that we'll cover some more historical ground. So this is the beginning of a conversation. If you would like to continue that conversation, i got a lot of stuff online that you can access. I'm on both Twitter and Instagram, at Jamar Tisby, J-E-M-A-R-T-I-S-B-Y, so you can follow my rants and ravings on social media. We also have a couple of websites I would invite you to visit. TheWitnessBCC.com, TheWitnessBCC.com. We've got literally hundreds of articles on these and related topics. Next, uh, I also have my own website, JamarTisby.com, and two podcasts for your listening pleasure. If you are not a podcast listener and you drive a lot or you work out or you clean, it's a great time to listen to podcasts. The first one is called Pass the Mic, M-I-C, Pass the Mic. And the second one is called Footnotes. You can feel free to whip out your smartphone and subscribe right now. <laughs> so um, the last thing I want to tell you about is our first national conference. It's called the Joy and Justice Conference. The struggle for black people has been a struggle for justice ever since Europeans forcibly brought us to this nation's coastline. And that deserves attention. But what's also true is that somehow in the midst of that, we found joy. We've been able to laugh and raise families and achieve and create culture. And so at this conference, the Joy and Justice Conference, we're going to highlight both of those aspects. It's October 4th and 5th in Chicago. Definitely not too late to register. You can go to joyandjustice.com. If you can't make it, but you appreciate what I'm saying and you want to support it, feel free to donate at joyandjustice.com. Just click on the menu there that says donate, and you can do that electronically or buy a check. And that's all the announcements I have. Here's the thing. I need to prep you for what you're about to hear. This history is uh, not very flattering toward American history in general, and particularly toward the white church. Um, 
it's hard to hear because a lot of this, a lot of this history has been deliberately hidden, overlooked, or silenced. But if we're going to make progress in the congregation and the nation along racial lines, then we got to confront these truths. Now, I don't do this to pick on any particular people group or, or branch of the church, but it's like Martin Luther King said. He said, like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed. With all the tension its exposure creates, the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion has to be exposed before it can be With me so far? Yes, sir. All right, we'll see. Now, now I'm up here giving a talk, but if you need to talk back, that's fine. Say an amen or a whoa or hey, you're stepping on my feet, that's fine. Um, the other thing is I'll try to leave a few minutes at the end for questions, so feel free to take notes as we go along and, and keep a record of your questions. So let's get into this. It's divided into two parts. We're going to start with the colonial era, which went from roughly the late 1400s up to about the 1760s. And in this period, race was still being made. What the United States would become was still in question, was still in flux. Nothing was written in stone in this period. And in this period, we look at how white Christians cooperated in making European-American society one that was coded according to skin color. So, all the way from the earliest days of European contact with North America, they were evaluating people of color based on color. They compared Native Americans to European-Americans and judged them based on how closely they resembled Europeans. Christopher Columbus, he's a controversial figure. You may have grown up hearing about Columbus as this courageous explorer, but Columbus helped introduce European colonization to North America, which stole the land from Native Americans, slaughtered tens of thousands of Native Americans in wars, and decimated their population through disease. On top of that, Columbus and the Europeans who followed him brought ideas of Christianity that refused with their own European culture so that in many ways to them to be Christian was in effect to be culturally European. One of Columbus's early letters back to Spain compared indigenous and European physical features. This is a quote from Columbus's letter. He said, as regards beauty, the Christians, meaning Europeans, said there was no comparison. Both men and women and that their skins, Native Americans, are whiter, or that the European skins are whiter than the indigenous people. They saw two girls whose skins were as white as any that could be seen in Spain. Now, this alone is, doesn't tell us that much. I mean, if you go to a place where you've never been and you look at the appearance of people, it's natural to sort of try to describe it. But then they attached a value to it. This is what he said. During his first voyage, Columbus wrote, the indigenous inhabitants should be good servants and intelligent, for I observed that they quickly took in what was said to them, and I believed that they would easily be made Christians, as it appeared to me that they had no religion. 
You see all the coded messages in there? He says that Native Americans should be good servants. There was no idea in this letter that, that, that Native Americans could be anything other than servants to Europeans. They couldn't be equals already. This is in the 1490s. Then, he said they weren't intelligent, so they'll be really good servants. And that they would easily be made Christians. The assumption there is that they were blank slates. It totally ignores the very complicated spirituality that Native Americans already had. So you get this idea of paternalism, that we Europeans can come to this quote-unquote savage land, civilize these people, make them servants, and make them Christians just like us. Let me tell you about John Rolfe and Matoaka. You may know her better by her nickname, Pocahontas. So there was this Englishman named John Rolfe, and he wanted to achieve fortune and notoriety by going to North America, starting businesses and making money. He arrived in Jamestown in 1610. He eventually became a member of the Virginia Assembly. And he met an indigenous woman named Matoaka, the daughter of Chief Powhatan. Matoaka converted to Christianity in 1613, and she received the more Christian name of Rebecca upon her baptism. So already sort of these cultural ideas being imposed. Her, her Native American name wasn't good enough now that she was a Christian. She had to take a European name. And uh, she and Rolf were married, and they had a child together. They only had a brief marriage, however, because they traveled to England, and within a year, she died of a disease. Although it lasted only briefly, Matoaka's marriage to Rolf inspired hope in some Europeans. Because her marriage to an Englishman symbolized heathen, non-Christian, submission to proper religion, and to English gender norms. That's what historian Rebecca Ann Getz writes. The English colonist's goal was to come over and make money and at the same time to evangelize the indigenous inhabitants. And so they looked at Matoaka or Pocahontas, and the fact that she became a Christian, and the fact that she married an Englishman, the fact that they had a child together as a sign that these Native Americans could be civilized, which essentially meant they could become more European. There's a confusion of culture with Christianity. Names, language, clothing, education, all meant, all loaded with meaning that, that you were a Christian if you did these cultural things. It's yet another sign of Christian complicity with racism when the culture of one group is seen as the only authentic way to be Christian. You with me so far? Have y'all heard of the 1619 Project? We're here in the year 2019, 400 years since 1619, which is when uh, the first Africans were forcibly brought to the coast of colonial Virginia. Now, Africans had been in parts of North America already enslaved long before that by the Spanish, but this is when they entered British colonial Virginia, and it's a date that marks the beginning of what became race-based chattel slavery. To commemorate the event, 
Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative reporter who works for the New York Times Magazine, coordinated something called the 1619 Project. I invite you to check it out. It's pretty much sold out everywhere, but you can order it online, and they will send it to you once they print more copies. But the aim of the 1619 Project is, quote, to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Remember at the beginning I said some of these stories have been hidden or silenced. The 1619 Project aims to bring light to these events. So dozens of authors, scholars, poets contributed to this project in painstaking research, fact-checking, people doing their best to present an accurate picture of history and the impact of slavery. But did you see the response? If you look online, especially, there are articles and social media posts, people losing their minds about this project. You can't say that. This is all slanted history. America is great. You hate America. Go somewhere else. It's all of this stuff. Simply from telling the truth about America's racist past and the ongoing ramifications. Those kinds of reactions, along with the need for such a project like the 1619 Project, tell you that America has yet to reckon with racism. But we're going to start reckoning right now. We're going to tell the truth, the hard, sad truth about racism, in particular in regards to the American church. Remember, it didn't have to be this way. So what you need to know about 1619 and the period that followed is that slavery wasn't yet the order of the day. It hadn't been codified yet. Now, there was already ideas and notions of slavery, but of course, historians go back and forth about you know, whether these 20 and odd Negroes that were brought in 1619, were they enslaved or were they indentured servants? That was a common practice in the day. Indentured servitude meant if you were in debt or uh, needed to have food and shelter, you could um, basically contract out your work, your labor, to someone for a period of years. Now, that's important because indentured servitude had an endpoint. And once you were out of indentured servitude, you were free. You could go on and own property and marry and have children and become a professional. And indeed, that's what happened to some early Africans in North America. Uh, there's stories of, of Africans, even themselves, enslaving or, or uh, having other folks in indentured servitude. And the indentured servitude wasn't strictly based on skin color. So there were a lot of poor Europeans who were indentured, Native Americans, black people, mixed race people. It sort of spanned the spectrum. But over time, you get this codified institution, the peculiar institution of slavery. Just to put it in context, historian Ed, Edmund Morgan writes, white racial feelings undoubtedly affected the position of Negroes. There's more than a little evidence that Virginia, Virginians during these years were ready to think of Negroes as members or potential members of the community on the same terms as other men and to demand of them the same standards of behavior. So there was the potential that black people could be equal in society in this early period. By the mid-17th century, some Africans lived as free people and worked in a variety of professions. A few, like Anthony Johnson, became wealthy enough to own land and buy enslaved Africans themselves. 
But over time, slavery became associated with race and skin color. We've already talked about the Virginia Assembly. What stands out to me about that is a part of a few things. Number one, when did it occur? 1667. Guess what? That's over 100 years before the Declaration of Independence. That's over 100 years before the Constitution, which means these ideas of racism were embedded since before the political entity known as the United States came into being. What does that mean? There was no great period of American history that we can go back to when racism wasn't a problem. You hear me? The other thing is that you have this confluence of race, religion, and politics. So you have this political entity, the Virginia Assembly, making a law about religion, baptism, based on race. It pertains to Native Americans, Africans, and people of mixed race descent. So it's right there. So, so, so you can never address race, religion, or politics completely separately. They're all intertwined. So don't be afraid to go there. Right. Moving on, let me give you one more example of Christian complicity with racism. It was real hard for European Christian missionaries to evangelize the enslaved. Now, why might that be? Why might it be difficult for enslaved people to adopt the religion of their oppressors? I don't know. So they didn't have much success for decades. But the little success they did have was already tinged with racism. Not tinged, it was, like, it was overflowing. So here's what a missionary, Francis Lejean, he was commissioned by the Society for the Propagation of, gospel, of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. He ministered in Virginia from 1706 until his death in 1717. And he made very little progress, but the few conversions he made Immediately they would get baptized. And here are the baptismal vows that he made people of color recite upon their Christian conversion. He said, you declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake of the grace and blessings promised to the members of the Church of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? All right, Negroes, you can get baptized, but don't ask for freedom. You are only getting baptized because it's good for your soul, and not because you want to claim equality with the white man. Not because you want to claim freedom for yourself and your spouse and your children. Those are in the baptismal vows inviting you into the family of God, already given a subordinate or second-class status in the household of God. Remember, the big idea is that it didn't have to be this way. If racism can be made, it can be unmade. Like a house with a crumbling foundation, though, it's more difficult to change an existing structure than to build one from the beginning, but it is possible. Let me pause right there. Sorry, introverts. 
but I would love for you to speak to someone near you and tell them one thing that stuck out to you, one thing you remember, or one question you have just about the content that we've covered so far. I told you I used to be a teacher. It's called processing time. So I'm going to give you about 90 seconds to process with someone near you. Go for it. Church, or the African Methodist Episcopal Church. 
Um, along the way, there are other things like uh, Negro. Uh, that was commonplace in the Civil Rights era. Martin Luther King tended to always use the, the term Negro. Color would be another, which would stand for people of African descent or mixed race descent. Um, obviously, there's the N-word as a racial epithet that black people have transformed into a term of fellowship. Um, and uh, then there is the term African-American, meant to signify both the African heritage and the American nationality. And then, especially in the 1960s and onwards with the black consciousness movement, uh, people started to use the term black. Now, black had always been used as a descriptor, but often as a negative. You're black, and that's supposed to be negative, bad, evil. This is an example of, of, of people turning that around and making it a term of empowerment. And so they started to use things like uh, black power. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Very good. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, we can take one more. All right. Um, I just want to <coughs> reference what you said with the Negro and mm -hmm. the other N word, mm -hmm. and what you said how um, black people have taken and created something. And I just have to say, like, I'm not in agreement with that. There's no um, making something nice or better. It's like really to me being a thinking, and I'm a Christian, I'm also a minister, um, that we can pray the devil to the good. Like we can pray for the devil's soul. And I think that we, 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 we know, we know that, that that is not something that we can do or is going to happen. And so, to me, words like that, that um, degrade, dehumanize, um, debase uh, people, there is no way. And even for us as people of color, black people, Negroes, whatever you want to call it, um, to say that we can make a turn and make it, take it and own it and make it better, it does nothing of it is good. I just have to say, there's nothing good that I'm glad you highlight that. It's highlights some of the ideological diversity within the black or African American community. Uh, right when these transitions are taking place, there are all kinds of debates uh, about what terms to use. And so even among people of color, specifically people of African descent, there's a lot of debate. Should you use the N-word? Can it be turned into a positive? Uh, any other range of language. And so that's just part of the wrestling with identity that we have, people fall in different places, and that's certainly a place that uh, a lot of folks, uh, in opinion, that a lot of folks would have shared. So thank you for sharing that. So in part two, we're looking at the revolutionary period. And one of the big historical markers of that era is the Declaration of Independence. One of the main drafters, writers, of the Declaration was Thomas Jefferson who, as we should all know by now, was a slaveholder. There is a uh, very interesting, provocative, tragic uh, uh, reality about Jefferson and Sally Hemings, who was of mixed race, but because she had, there's this thing called the one drop rule, but because she had any African blood, she was considered black or colored, um, and therefore enslaved. Thomas Jefferson enslaved her 
took her as essentially a concubine and started raping her when she was about 14 years old. She had at least six children by Thomas Jefferson, and she wasn't the only one. Jefferson enslaved over 600 people. Bear this in mind when you hear these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. <laughs> that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So who was Thomas Jefferson thinking of when he wrote those words? Was it Sally Hemings? Was it his half dozen children by her? Where was it the 600 people he enslaved? From the very start, America had this contradiction embedded within it that liberty was meant for white men and that slavery was meant for Africans in America. Christian complicity with this is all over the revolutionary period. The Great Awakening is a name that historians give to a period of time when there were these big religious revivals and large numbers of people converted to Christianity. George Whitfield was an Anglican minister, and historians call him the first intercolonial celebrity. We think of folks like Billy Graham or T.D. Jakes, and they speak to millions of people through their ministries. Well, this is sort of the precursor to that. George Whitfield spoke to crowds of thousands of people in open-air preaching. Now, when he came on the scene, he was presenting something very different religiously. See, most people at that time were used to these very sort of dry, theological people reading from a manuscript during the sermon in traditions like Anglicanism and Presbyterianism and Catholicism. George Whitfield had been trained as an actor in theater. And so when he preached, he did it without a manuscript. He did it with drama. There's a rumor that's been passed down through history that he could bring people to tears just by saying the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> so thousands of people came out to see and hear this revolutionary Great Awakening revivalist preacher named George Whitfield. And for his day, he started out as a moderate on race. He wrote, unsure of whether it be lawful for Christians to buy slaves, so he's not sure if enslaving people is okay, but he said that it is positively sinful that when bought to use them as though they were brutes. In other words, if you do enslave someone, then you must treat them like a human being. That's what he was saying. Unlike some other Christian slaveholders, Whitfield thought that the enslaved should actually hear the gospel. Some slaveholders refused to teach their enslaved people about Christianity because they thought it might lead to these wacky notions of equality and liberty. And they were right. But Whitfield's views on slavery changed over time. Georgia, the state of Georgia, was founded in 1732 as a free colony, a free state. 
But in 1738, Whitfield traveled to Georgia and he had this idea. He wanted to start an orphanage there called Bethesda Orphanage. Bethesda means house of mercy. But he struggled to keep that orphanage open due to mismanagement and money. So he's trying to make money to keep this orphanage open. And with the help of some friends, he buys a 640-acre plantation. At that plantation, he utilizes enslaved labor, and guess what? He figures out, hey, I can turn a profit. All I have to do is buy people, like their property, and then not pay them. And he gets so excited about the financial prospects of slavery that he writes to the governor of Virginia, and he advocates that Georgia adopt slavery officially. He says to the governor, Georgia can never be a flourishing province unless Negroes are employed as slaves. So he goes from this kind of moderate to openly advocating. And this is the most well-known revivalist preacher of the era. It's because of things like that that we have black churches. I'll talk more about this as we get into the Civil War era next time. But we can talk about the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. A black man named Richard Allen was born a slave in 1760. He converted to Methodism, he bought his freedom, and he began preaching at a white church called St. George's Methodist in, in Philadelphia. But even then, even though that was a white church, they allowed black people, but only on a second-class status. One Sunday in 1792, Richard Allen and a fellow black minister named Absalom Jones entered St. George's to worship. Unknowingly, they took seats reserved for white parishioners, and thus they violated the segregated seating arrangements. And they were worshiping and they knelt down to pray, but one of the church's white trustees interrupted them. Allen recounted the episode in his autobiography, and he wrote this. We had not been long upon our knees before I had heard considerable scuffling and low talking. I raised my head up and saw one of the trustees, the initials H.M., having hold of the Reverend Absalom Jones, pulling him up off his knees and saying, You must get up. You must not kneel here. Mr. Jones replied, Wait until the prayer is over. Mr. H.M. said, No, you must get up now, or I will call for aid and force you over. Mr. Jones said, wait until prayer is over, and I will get up and trouble you no more. Right after that, the black people left. They went down the road. Richard Allen started Mother Bethel AME, which still operates today. Uh, and a couple of years later after that, they founded the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, not from any big doctrinal differences, not because they had a huge gap in their theology between white and black Christians, but because of racism in the church. The American church compromised with racism in the 18th century by permitting slavery to continue. I can tell you a lot more stories. And the Christian church grew in the 1730s and 40s because of that great awakening. But the racial hierarchy remained firmly entrenched in the church and society. In one of American history's clearest contradictions, not even the revolutionary ideals of independence and equality or the religious transformations brought on by the Great Awakening could deconstruct the foundations of this racist 
social period. Indeed, slavery and the meaning of race became more institutionalized as the country progressed through the opening decades of the 19th century. So what we've seen in this very brief survey is a society segmented by skin color. But that segmentation was anything but inevitable. Race is socially constructed in the colonial era. People, including Christians, made deliberate decisions to limit the rights and freedoms of people of color, specifically of African descent. Europeans became white, and Africans became black. White meant Christian and free. Black meant heathen and slave. We've also seen that, it would come, that when it comes to ideas of liberty and revolution, it only applied to white people, specifically white men, and when black people tried to assert their right to freedom, all the noble ideas in that Declaration of Independence and the spirit of revolution, suddenly they didn't apply. So what? The past shapes the present, but it doesn't determine the future. What has been true historically does not have to be true going forward. If race can be made, there's a sense in which it can be unmade as well. That is, we can make choices that bring about justice and equality. It's up to us right now, in this generation, you sitting right here, to commit ourselves to making the critical decisions that will lead to a society and a church that recognizes the dignity and equality of all people, of all races and ethnicities. How has the evolution helped uh, racism and violence? What evolution? Uh, like time, over time. How has it helped? Yes, sir. Um, well, over time, uh, the racism and violence became more embedded in American culture. And so, if there's been any help, it's been through the constant struggle of black people and their allies to bring about justice. So the critical part here is that the default in American society is toward racial injustice. And, and, and there's that phrase, the arc of justice bends, the, the, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Well, somebody's got to bend it. And that's the story of black people and others who have advocated for racial justice. So we have seen progress. Uh, black people are no longer in physical chains, although we can talk about the chains of, of poverty and inequality in other ways. Uh, but I'm glad that, that we don't have race-based chattel slavery anymore. That's progress, but remember, it came through America's bloodiest war. I'm glad that segregation based on skin color is ostensibly not legal, although we can talk about ways that it still happens. Um, but I'm glad that we have Brown v. Board and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So there has been some progress, but that progress is not guaranteed. And if we let up in this struggle for freedom, we can easily go back to uh, days that were much more troublesome for people of color. Other questions? Yes. Y'all getting credit for it? <laughs> <laughs> I ain't had it all. 
so like you talked about like the evolution of the word and um, me and my professor were back there just talking about like my question to you is basically like why do we take like ownership for words that were basically forced upon us mm-hmm. I always thought that was interesting like, my dad he's a he's a history teacher and uh, I was quick little story I was like 15 mm-hmm. and uh, caught me slipping I said the n-word in the house and we had a long conversation about it. he basically told me I shouldn't be saying it and he just said um, when he was in college he took African-American history class and after he took the class I, he never said the word again mm-hmm. and I was just like it kind of just stuck in the back of my head. So my freshman year of college, I took an African-American history class. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. Like, it, it, yeah. it shocked me. It's, to, yeah, it, it's crazy. Yes. So like, I think, just to add on to what the lady in the, in the back said, like, I think it comes down to, to education, like educating mm-hmm. like, the youth on like, what's right and what's wrong and what our history is, even though like, we, not, we might not necessarily want to take ownership for that history mm-hmm. as Americans. So I guess all that together, my question to you is, like, why do you... Why do we take ownership for words that aren't really for us? It's a great, great question. Thank you, Thank you for that story, too. Um, so I think the N-word is a, is a particular case because that's still a very, very loaded term. Um, and so there are lots of black people who are going to disagree on using that or not using that. Um, I think in general, though, we look at words that people mean as an insult. And when you turn it around, what it does is it takes the power away from that time. Uh, so King talked about people calling him an extremist. And then he wrote about, you know, as I thought about it, maybe I am an extremist. I'm an extremist for love. And then he goes in this beautiful explication of what it means to be an extremist for love and for justice. And in doing so, he took the power away from the people who would call him an extremist as something negative. Um, and in, in, in many ways, I think that's what people are attempting to do. Now, folks can agree with that or not, but I think when you take these terms that are meant as an insult and, and, and redefine them, what you're trying to do is, is take that power, uh, the, the negative power away, and turn it into something positive. Do you agree with it? I don't really use the N-word, per se, but I'm not mad when people do it, because I understand the reasoning behind it. Yes, sir. So I read a book recently um, about uh, the history of black people in the White House, uh, The Kitchen Cabinet. It's a really good book. Um, and in it, we talked about um, uh, how Sally Hemings' brother, or half-brother, was Thomas Jefferson's butler. So literally taking care of him while he literally pinned the Declaration of Independence. I mean, he had a slave taking care of his every want and need. And not just a slave, his the brother of, you know, his womb slave, uh, with Sally Hemings there, like, and, and so, but he had included, the book said that he had included a part in the Declaration of Independence that was voted out by the Continental Congress, uh, specifically the Southern States, but there's a part saying that slavery was an evil inherited by King George, inherited from, uh, from England. And so even from the, like, at that notion, you could tell they knew it was evil. They knew it was evil. But when confronted with the power structures and the economy, they're fine. So I guess that's always been my struggle with, with race relations, gender equality, 
justice in any form, we're not talking about necessarily hearts and minds all the time. Because it, the, the reason why people are okay with advocating for evil comes down to the power that they have. So, I mean, is that, am I reading that correctly? I mean, am, I, am I picking up on those things? I think so. Um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there was a portion in the Declaration of Independence. But remember, the Declaration of Independence is meant as a jab to Britain. And so they're saying he foisted this institution upon us. And so Jefferson wrote that in the Declaration as part of his jab toward Britain. We wouldn't have this thing if it wasn't for you guys. But like you said, uh, slaveholding states in the South basically held the declaration hostage and said, we're not going to sign this unless you take that part out. And so there were lots of compromises. Same thing with the Constitution. We can go into some of the stories, some of the backstory behind the Constitution and, and, and why slavery was and wasn't omitted in certain ways. Um, and so, yeah, I think what it gets to is a lot of the excuses that people make is that for slaveholders, they call them men of their time. And we can't judge people of the past based on our current moral standards. Okay, you want to play that game? Then let's judge it just by other people of the time. So there were certainly abolitionists in the days of the uh, colonial and revolutionary era. There were certainly people who disagreed with enslavement. Uh, there were certainly, even Jefferson himself knew the brutality of it. Who better than somebody who owns 600 people to know what enslavement actually looked like. Um, there were lots of people like George Whitfield who started out as moderate because he saw the way enslaved people were treated and said, there's something not right about this. And so we can't simply say, well, they didn't know any better because everybody was doing it. There were a lot of people objecting to it at that time. And you bring up another good point about the issue of political and financial power. Often those considerations overshadow any Christian convictions. All right. Thank you very much.